Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Martin Luther King Day, Monday, January 15th. Israel's been at war for 101 days. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. Some people relax over the weekend. Some people go to parties. But for some of us, that's when the real work gets done. We track all the news coming out of the Middle East and beyond. We do it like it's our business because it is our business. Then we package it up for you here on the FDD Morning Brief. So without further ado, let's get going. This morning, I'll be joined by Bill Roggio, the editor of FDD's Long War Journal. For those unfamiliar, this is FDD's no-nonsense news site, and Bill is a no-nonsense kind of guy. We'll hear from him shortly about those Iran-backed militias attacking U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. But before we talk to Bill, let's take a look at the news. Yesterday marked 100 days since October 7th. There's an obvious focus here on the 136 Israelis still being held against their will by Hamas in Gaza. Their plight remains a major concern. And folks are also rightly concerned about the outcome of the war between Israel and Hamas. That war has taken its toll on Israelis and Palestinians alike. But let me widen the aperture here. Today marks 100 days since Hezbollah, the Iran-backed terrorist organization in Lebanon, began firing rockets at Israel. The group started attacking Israel without provocation on October 8th, and those attacks continue to this day. According to reports that have since been confirmed to me by Israeli officials over the past three months, the Israelis were actually preparing to strike Hezbollah first after the 10-7 slaughter. President Biden personally intervened to convince the Israelis to take care of one problem at a time. And in retrospect, that was probably sound advice. But in the months that followed, Hezbollah has attacked Israel with an estimated 1,000 missiles, rockets, and drones, maybe even twice that. And the group has forced more than 100,000 Israelis from northern communities to flee their homes. The Israelis have responded by striking back every time they are struck. This hasn't established an ounce of deterrence. But one positive here, the Israelis are taking out strategic targets and weakening Hezbollah's overall capabilities one strike at a time. Yet, that doesn't solve the big problem. Hezbollah is still there. The group has a whopping 200,000 rockets in its arsenal. It has a precision-guided munitions arsenal as well, and those weapons have deadly accuracy. And while a war with Hezbollah could mean disaster for Lebanon, it would also mean disaster for Israel. The death toll could reach into the thousands. Large Israeli buildings could be toppled. Precise attacks on strategic assets in Israel could lead to mass casualty events. I've argued from day one that this is the war to watch. As scary as Gaza has been, Lebanon is far scarier. There are some in Israel who say it's time to rip off the Band-Aid and do what needs to be done. They argue that the reservists are already up. The country is already on war, on war footing. Others say Hezbollah is also on high alert. Better to strike the group later when it's not quite ready for war. But here's the thing, folks. A hundred days into Hezbollah's low-level war against Israel, one thing is clear. A wider war in the North is a matter of when, not if. And it will be the toughest war we've probably ever seen in the Middle East, unless someone can pull a diplomatic rabbit out of their hat. Fingers crossed. Maybe toes too. 
Okay, moving on. Here are the top three big stories of today. Headline one, Hamas released a video yesterday showing proof of life for three hostages. Here's what we know. The group continues to wage psychological warfare against Israel. These videos have a deep impact on the psyche of the Israeli public who have been desperate to get their fellow countrymen home. So what's my take? Allow me to be a tad optimistic here. Very uncharacteristic of me, I know. But here goes. Psychological warfare is just about the only weapon that Hamas has right now uh, since the Israeli invasion. Sure, the Israelis have lost fighters on the battlefield. And yes, the war has been a drain on the Israeli economy. But the pace of the Hamas rocket fire has slowed significantly. Israel has killed more than 9,000 Hamas fighters. It has struck more than 30,000 targets since the fighting began. Some of Hamas's external leaders have reportedly left Lebanon as of today for fear of Israeli targeted strikes. And the Hamas military infrastructure that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build has been decimated. If I didn't know any better, I'd say Hamas is running out of gas. Headline two. Germany has come to Israel's defense at the sham genocide trial in The Hague. Here's what happened. The Germans, who for historical reasons have a vested interest in Israel's survival, had apparently seen enough of the legal circus. The government in Berlin stepped up and stated that it, of all countries, knows what genocide is. And they do. And what is happening in Gaza is clearly not genocide. It's not. This dramatic episode came amidst a pylon from a wide range of other anti-Israel countries ranging from Turkey to Namibia, who have been cheering on an Orwellian legal process that has vilified Israel for defending itself in a war it didn't start. So now what? I must admit to having no idea how this thing is going to go play out. The United States, the UK, and others have slammed these proceedings, but why have they not intervened directly? And if they did, would it be enough? We'll keep watching. And finally, headline three, the U.S. continues to hammer Houthi targets in Yemen in response to aggression on the Red Sea. It was about time week, weeks of unanswered Houthi attacks finally gave way to several waves of U.S. strikes. It's a brushback pitch for sure, but it's unclear whether these strikes will have a long-term impact. It all depends on what gets destroyed. I can't say for sure, but I suspect that it is the Saudis and the Emiratis who are quietly providing the intelligence for these strikes. This is their backyard. Let's, let's hope they have good intelligence. So now what? Ibrahim Raisi, the president of Iran, has issued statements in defense of his Yemeni terror proxy. Hassan Nasrallah, the secretary general of Hezbollah, went further to state that the Houthi attacks, as well as the Shiite militia attacks out of Syria and Iraq, will continue so long as the Gaza war continues. Whether we like it or not, this is a regional war, and Iran is the head of the snake. Entanglements with Iranian proxies are going to continue so long as we fail to exact a steep price from Iran. Let me say it again slightly differently. This is an Iran-led war, and it has many fronts across the Middle East. It began with Hamas. It spread to Lebanon, Yemen, Iraq, and Syria, but it ends with Iran. The Israelis know this. Does anyone else? Okay, those are your headlines. I'm now pleased to welcome Bill Rogio, editor and publisher of FTD's Long War Journal. Bill and I have been working together for 13 years. Welcome, Bill. John, well, uh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, 13 years. I remember meeting you in Philadelphia with, uh, I believe it was with Mark, and we had cheesesteaks together. It was our first meeting. 
And I knew it was going to be a, a fun and prosperous relationship. And it has been. So look, let's dive in. For viewers and listeners unfamiliar, what is the Long War Journal and, and, and who is your targeted audience? Yeah, the Long War Journal, I, I just it's a news and analysis site. We focus, I think of it as a boutique site. We focus exclusively on terrorist-related issues, not just Al-Qaeda and then what became the Islamic State, um, but the Taliban, and we deal with state sponsorship of terrorism. And of course, we deal with the other, the Shia side of terrorism as well, the militias in Iraq and Syria, which I tracked for oh my God, almost two decades now. Obviously, uh, the uh, Israel's war with the Palestinian terrorists and Hezbollah. So we just sort of consider ourselves a clearinghouse for all of these, uh, um, the reporting and analysis on all these terrorist organizations. And we also have a podcast called Generation Jihad, which John, you've been on multiple times as well. And that's where we get to discuss this and analyze them further. Um, the Long War Journal, um, it's kind of a bizarre labor of love, which I think you could understand. I, I kind of liken what we do is to be being like uh, detectives, murder or homicide detectives, right? It's an ugly, business that we deal with. Um, we deal with horrible people and uh, we're tracking them and trying to get into their minds and understand them. I think that's one of the things that's made the Long War Journal so successful over the years. We've, we, we, we can think like them. We can red team. It's how we were able to understand what the Taliban was doing or how the U.S. was succeeding and then failing in Iraq and, and the problems with Pakistan, U.S. relations and, and Pakistan support for terror groups. And, um, you know, I, I imagine when a homicide detective, you know, solves that case and moves on to the next, it's just still bad business. But there is a, a, a bizarre satisfaction to doing this. And your audience is primarily military intelligence, yeah. but also you um, you have an audience among terror groups themselves, right? Yeah, the audience. Uh, sorry, I missed that. You have military intelligence. I have a lot, a lot of people at the State Department, um, uh, Homeland Security, state. Um, I hear from a lot of, uh, you know, state level terrorism group, uh, you know, tracking groups. Um, but yes, uh, terrorists themselves. And one of the biggest tips I got in my career was right after I joined FDD was the, the Taliban when after the attempted Times Square bombing, uh, President uh, Obama was saying it was likely right wing terrorists. And meanwhile, I get an email from the Taliban, um, a Taliban spokesman with the video of Hakimullah Massoud, who everyone but me said he was dead. I was saying, no, oh, the reporting on that is fake. So I had a double scoop. The Taliban claimed the attack with the with the bomber and said that their leader was actually alive. So that's the we are our work often winds up in um, terrorist uh, propaganda like uh uh, Al Qaeda's Inspire magazine from AQAP, the the Taliban uh, Al Samud, which is their magazine, has re um, repeated our work in multiple other places. I've I've been told that um, uh, Long War Journal material was found in Osama bin Laden's compound. I haven't actually seen it in in those in there, but that's what uh, intelligence officials have told me. Okay, so uh, I guess good enough for for the U.S. military, U.S. <laughs> intelligence, good enough for the terrorist groups themselves. That's an interesting wide range of uh, of readers. Um, it's a bizarre quick, form of triangulation, right, John? Right, right. Um, real quick, just so folks know, how did you get into this? It's an interesting story, right? Just give us 30 seconds on that before we dive yeah. into the militias. 
So I, I tracked Al-Qaeda when I was in the U.S. military in the 90s. I, I found it to be a fascinating organization. 9-11 happened. My brother-in-law worked in the second tower, my sister a couple blocks away. Uh, fortunately, they he they witnessed the whole event on the ferry on the way to New York, but I didn't hear from him for 24 hours. I started a blog just to sort of explain what was happening. It, um, by 2005, I was closely tracking. I don't know how this happened, but I tracking... Um, Al-Qaeda's operations in Anbar province. I was invited by the Marines out there. They called the, my blog the command. Um, I, I forget the, with how they describe it, but basically I was told by even their operations leader, they'd wake up and read the long war journal to see what we had to say was happening in their AO. They invited me to do an embed. I took the risk at the time I was working in IT that uh, cost me my job, but I took the, took a risk of, of getting into this professionally. And, um, you know, never had a plan, never had a business plan. You know, within five years of that embed, you know, you reached out to me at FDD and, and the rest is history. And we're glad you, uh, you're part of the team. Um, let's talk about Thank those you. Shiite militias now in, in Iraq and Syria. How many of them are there? What is their MO in the Middle East? What are the biggest ones or the most important ones to track? I mean, I think they always get lumped in just kind of one big bucket and no one really knows how to differentiate them. So how, how do you how do you analyze these uh, these uh, various PMUs, as they're called, the popular mobilization units? Yeah, it's a great question, John. And, and you're right. They're often just lumped into as Shia militias. So there's dozens of these. I focus on seven of them. Um, and there's sort of a history to them. There is the Bader Brigade brigades and then uh, Sarai al-Salam, which is the Muqtada al-Sadr's. These were sort of the old school militias founded, supported by Iran um, back even early, as the early the 1980s and 1990s, 1980s with Bader. They actually fought alongside Iran against Iraq. Um, after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, Iran took um, a Hezbollah leader and key Iraqi militia leaders and the IRGC, Qasem Soleimani, of course, established, um, broke off elements of the uh, Mahdi army and created what the U.S. military called the special groups. And the two biggest ones that were created were Hezbollah brigades and Asib al-Haq. By the way, we know this because we actually captured uh, Musali Daktuk, who was the Hezbollah commander um, who was responsible and also another individual known as Case Ghazali interrogated for them for years to find out how this was all done. These groups are responsible for killing hundreds, probably over 600 American soldiers in Iraq in IED attacks, um, EFP attacks, explosively formed penetrators, as well as ambushes and other types of insider attacks. And then after the, uh, the establishment of the Islamic State, the, um, these, uh, the Islamic State basically defeated the Iraqi military. The Iraqi military was falling apart. And these militias created some offshoots, some to operate inside of Syria, but they're Iraqi-based. And they fought the Islamic State. And sometimes with the U.S. air support and intelligence, which I always found to be very um, distasteful, these groups are uh, Harkat Hezbollah al-Nijaba, Kataib Sayyid uh, um, al-Shahada, and Iman Ali brigades, these are the three biggest ones. As you noted, they're all part of the popular military forces or popular military units. It's an official military organization that reports directly to Iraq's prime minister. And it um, basically, I, our analysis over the dec past decade has been, this is essentially, uh, Iran is establishing these units or this popular mobilization unit to be the IRGC for Iraq. And, and let's face it, 
Iran's influence with these militias, there's hundreds of thousands of fighters. And unless people think they're just some, you know, untrained fighters, they fought against the U.S. military. Some of them fought against Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war, against the U.S. military, then against the Islamic State, then went into Syria and fought in uh, in the civil war there, obviously with the Islamic State. And now they're attacking U.S. bases. They're well-trained, they're equipped, they're blooded, and they're very dangerous. And John, I want to make a, you know, I mentioned that they were established on the lines of Hezbollah. Look at what Iran did, how dangerous an organization is with Hezbollah, with a recruiting base of 4 million people in Lebanon. Um, a, half, maybe more of them to be Shia. I don't know the exact demographic. Become you know, 100,000 fighters, a real, not just a thorn, but a threat to the Israel. Now you have these Iraqi militias, a country of 36 to 38 million people, 50 to 60% of them are Shia. This and you have these militias growing, and they have hundreds of thousands of fighters in their in their ranks. They're not just directed internally in Iraq and in Syria. I describe them as a strategic reserve for Iran and its axis of resistance. They've been launching attacks against Israel with drones and other means. And if if even a portion of these fighters show up on the Israeli border, this can be a very big problem for Israel. I've been warning about this for a decade now, and and have largely been dismissed as like ah. You know, they're, Hezbollah is the real threat, and these groups are Iraqi-based. And, yeah, they are until they're not, and, and right now I think they're not. Yeah, and we've actually also seen, of course, that they've attacked U.S. bases more than 130 times by last count. Uh, and, and I think you can get a sense they're trying to make the U.S. pay a price for its support for Israel right now. Let me ask you just in closing, what is the response that you think is needed right now from the U.S. in particular? It's the U.S. that's getting hit more often than not. The Israelis have responded to a couple of different attacks out of Syria primarily. But are there different strategies needed for each one of these PMUs? Is there a kind of a one size fits all? Are there different strategies needed for Iraq versus Syria? What's your take here? Yeah, definitely uh, different strategies. The Houthis, let's focus on them. That's the easiest one. And oddly enough, it's been the most difficult. Iran has ships in the, in the ocean or in the Red Sea that are providing intelligence to the Houthis. Sink those ships, hit the Houthis hard, hit their leadership, make them pay a price. Um, do not just degrade their ability to attack in the Red, Red Sea, but destroy. But this administration really doesn't want you know, it's fearful of escalation. Well, guess what? One side is escalating. Iraq and Syria, um, very, you know, different theaters. You mentioned 130 attacks. There's been seven or eight U.S. responses. And the message they're getting is, is the U.S. doesn't want to escalate. And that's because the message, that is the message the U.S. is giving. The problem with Iraq is the, Iraq, the Iraqi government, the prime minister, is now starting to say it's time for the U.S. to leave. This shows the influence of these militias. The U.S. has to decide can it get the Iraqi government to back its actions in Iraq? And if it can't, then the U.S. really has to decide whether it, it staying inside of Iraq is tenable. At some point, one of these attacks is going to get through. It's going to kill and injure a lot of Amer uh, American soldiers. No, none of us wants to see an American base get overrun. So the U.S. either needs to double down and secure these bases and get the Iraqi government on board or it needs to leave. I mean, I don't see any other option. And then with, as goes Iraq, goes Syria. I don't believe that it's tenable for U.S. forces in Iraq or in Syria without um, uh, 
the the bases in Iraq. They they go back and forth. They supply, you know, the supply and the support. There's only 900 soldiers in Syria, 2,500 in Iraq. Now, but in Syria, this is where we should be hitting the militias the hardest, along with Hezbollah, because Syria is basically a, a, a free fire zone. I mean, every it's the playground of the militaries of the world. And if the U.S. really wants to get these, wants to make these militias pay, it's easy. It's hard to do in Iraq. It's probably the most influent, the place where you need to do it the most. But within Syria, we should just be leveling the uh, any compound any asset related to these iraqi slash syrian militias they're one in the same um and they need to be hit hard we we've lost our way when it comes to what deterrence means and how to apply it we think det deterrence john means not we obviously you and i understand this but the u.s government and our policymakers, um they think that deterrence means um we launch one strike we warrant give a stern warning and then tell them well, but we don't really want to escalate. All they, all the other side hears is we don't want to escalate, and they escalate themselves. All right. Uh, thank you for that, Bill. Uh, great analysis, and uh, just want to thank you again for joining us today. Always a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me on, and best of luck. Okay, here's what my FDD colleagues are tracking today. Craig Singleton from FDD's China program is tracking the Chinese response to this weekend's presidential election in Taiwan. The pro-America, pro-autonomy Democratic Progressive Party won the vote in what is largely seen as a rejection of China's efforts to reunify the island nation with the mainland. Also worth noting, FDD's China program chairman, Matt Pottinger, will be testifying before the House Foreign Affairs Committee on Wednesday about the infuriating flow of U.S. money into China's military. The New York Times reports that Russia's military has regained the upper hand in the fighting in eastern Ukraine. This is certainly not the end for Ukraine. The pendulum of momentum continues to shift back and forth between the two sides. My colleagues John Hardy and Cliff May are watching this war closely. Speaking of Cliff, I joined him and occasional Monday, uh, occasional morning brief host Rich Goldberg on FDD's Foreign Policy Podcast, another podcast, to discuss the long rap sheet of Qatar and what's to be done to counter their illicit activities. Catch that conversation on your preferred podcast platform, Foreign Policy. And finally, my colleague Enya Kravine is out with a new op-ed on why Israel and Saudi Arabia should pursue a normalization agreement regardless of what is decided about the fate of a Palestinian state. That's it for today. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at fdd.org slash invest. Thanks for tuning in today. I'll see you Wednesday for another Morning Brief. Until then, I'm Jonathan Chanzer, signing off for FDD.